0: Hi, everyone. This is Patrick Connors. I'm a sophomore here at USC. Today on the Catholic Trojan Podcast, I'll be talking with Father Hef, who's a Marinist priest and a professor here at USC. We talk about a lot of things, dealing with education, Father Hef's perspective as a teacher, faith and culture, his perspective as a priest, and a little bit of theology as well. Hope you guys enjoy. Thank you, Father Hef, for agreeing to... Beyond this episode of the podcast. And all right, so should be not too much heavy lifting today, just some simple questions. Theme of today, just a Catholic student talking with a priest. Brief overview, we'll get into a little bit of education, so your perspective from the teacher side of things, faith and cultures, just some ways in which Catholics today, specifically young Catholics, uh, can address some issues that I think are most pressing on the culture today, and a little bit, nothing too crazy, but a little bit of some theology that I've heard come about in the recent weeks, and would like to have some knowledge shed on these issues. So first off, well, we can start with the education perspective. As a teacher, this semester, the first one after about a year and a half on Zoom, how do you think... Zoom has changed the way students approach learning. So I guess this semester, having students back in person, do you see a change in the way students are approaching classes, material that you think is caused by the pandemic?
1: I find that question difficult to answer (laughs) Um, because it would presume that the students that I taught last fall on Zoom are now the students I'm teaching this fall. Mm. And they're not. So I don't have a sample that I can trace over a year's time. But one thing is clear, and that is that even though the students are all masked, as I, their professor, am masked, I often say it's like teaching a bunch of bank robbers. (laughs) Uh, Even though we're masked, uh, the students prefer the situation where they're in classes together, they're on campus, there's just no question about that. So being home, doing something on Zoom from there is uh, certainly not uh, desirable. A number of the students took a gap year, and I hmm. understand exactly why they did that. So even with masks, it's still much to be preferred this arrangement. A good teacher, like a good preacher, reads faces when they teach, and when they preach. The difficulty of the mask is that all you have to read are eyes, and that's less of a, a window into what they're really thinking. So I miss that, and I look forward to the time when none of us will have to be masked. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And going off Zoom, too, I've heard a lot of mixed, I guess, predictions about this. I've heard some people say that Zoom can be used in a way, a complementary way to in person and almost will be the, the way we do education now and it'll be better. I've heard some people say that this just showed how we should stay as far away from Zoom as possible. So from your perspective, how do you think this format of Zoom will be Integrated or maybe just completely avoided in education going forward?
1: There have been a number of studies long before Zoom zoomed in. <laughs> Skype, for example, which now is almost like a forgotten program. Yeah. The studies actually explored how well teams in industry work together, being either only on Skype or having a mixture of in person and Skype. Mm. And there was no question. The results were always the same that Skype or some type of teleconferencing program worked best when the individuals who were participating actually had been in each other's presence physically and worked together for a while.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: because that knowledge of people firsthand in the same location with you should never be underestimated and can easily be taken for granted. And I think now there are some people, uh, you know, who are saying they were lucky enough uh, to be able to work from home during the, the pandemic. One of the best things is going to be to see the extent to which workers really prefer to go back to the office, whether it's a mixed bag, whether it's a number of things like that. I don't know if you know this, but ordinarily here at USC, there are no undergraduate courses that are offered over Zoom or over any electronic format. Graduate courses, yes. I think for students on the graduate level who are place-bound, who have no other way, Mm. uh, cannot afford, can't travel, whatever the case is, it's better than just reading by yourself. So Zoom in that context can be helpful if you're reading also. I think the art of reading is something else that could be talked about at some length. But uh, So it's a mixed bag. And I would say five years from now, we'll have some understanding of what really happened. But at the present time, we're still in the midst of it. And it's too much around us to be able to get a perspective on it.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. And, and off of that, five, 10, 15 years in the future when this pandemic is written into history books. I know the international dimension of it too changes things, but I think specifically from the United States side, how do you think this is going to be? Is it going to be a little chapter in a book? Is this going to be seriously focused on? I know, like you said, we can't know definitely because we're still amidst this pandemic, but how do you think this is going to be viewed years down the road when it's in the rearview mirror and a part of history?
1: Patrick, I have enough trouble understanding the past. You're asking me to describe how it's going to be viewed 15 years ago. <laughs> I wouldn't dare do that. Um, but will it be studied? You can bet your bottom dollar it's going to be studied. And the issue, though, is whether the studies will be actually widely circulated and people will pay attention to them. So I... I and. And generally, I think the historical sense that Americans have is pretty minimal. So mm. I, I could picture 15 years and I could imagine a number of people saying, was there, was there a problem? Was pand- Did something happen back then? And so on. But uh, I would not hazard to predict what it's going to be, uh, what we're going to say about it 15 years from now.
0: Yeah, that's <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> I was speaking of past pandemics, obviously the biggest one was the Spanish influenza that we heard the analogies to. And it was strange because before 2020, I did not know that was a pandemic that actually affected this country. And I heard, I forget where exactly, but someone mentioned the reason it wasn't emphasized in the school system was something along the lines of where it fell between World War I the Great Depression and World War II. Have you heard a reason why many people didn't really know about it because it wasn't taught as we're taught these big moments in American history?
1: Well, a lot of people died, devastated quite a few families, and so on. I think there is a tendency in the present to exaggerate scandals and crises and then to forget them mm. and move on to the next thing. Sometimes it's conscious repression of history. There's a lot of debate about critical race theory. I would say that that you need to study history as factually as you can find it. And there are histories that are very biased and so on, but there's also good work. And I remember seeing a video about the nineteen twenty-one Tulsa massacre, mm. where between two and three hundred Blacks were murdered by white people. No one was held accountable. And in this video, so it's the 100th anniversary this year, in this video, uh, and I had heard about it before, there was a scene in a church where someone was asking, it's an African-American community uh, and congregation, and they were talking about some of this, and the person who was leading the discussion brought up the 1921 massacre, and a young man, maybe late 30s, mid 30s, I don't know, actually had already gone to college, and he claimed that he had never heard of it. Wow. And he grew up in Tulsa. Oh, wow. You know, so there is a way in which things are buried in the past, and that may have been part of what happened to the Spanish flu. It coincided with still the raging World War I, the war that was to end all wars, but did not. And then the Depression uh, from 1928, 30, 30, throughout the 30s, and then getting into another major war in 1941, all these things might take the front of our attention and suppress the back of it. So Mm -hmm. in the long run, uh, we don't remember things the way we should or grant them the importance uh, that we should, even for our understanding of things now.
0: Mm. yeah, now, given that, what what do you think would be the best way to prevent that from happening, kind of from the individual perspective of given the current way we're taught history, what would your advice be to to prevent that from happening as best one can?
1: Well, I mean, obviously I'm biased. I I was trained as a medieval historian. History is very important for me. It helps me to contextualize lots of things. Typically, when I write an article, I, I will look up the history of the issue. If it does have a history, most of them do. And then try to frame the current discussion in the light of that history, and then add whatever little I might be able to add to the conversation at the present moment. So there's no substitute for studying. People, unfortunately, limit it to school. Mm. I I think people that develop what I would call the habit of study will enrich their lives immensely, especially if they fast from media, which is always about breaking news. I think you've heard me say times past that every time there's a story on the media breaking news, I would want to see it followed by enduring truths. (laughs) Yep. Or truths that... History has shown to sustain themselves over time in a variety of circumstances because they are true, they're profound, they're significant. If we don't know that history, it's harder to pick out the core truths that we need to keep in the forefront of our minds.
0: Yeah. With studying, too, I know I've... I've had the sentiment myself and I've heard a lot of people say the same things high school and, and even now in college as from a teacher's perspective a lot of times students we fall into the sense of not finding meaning in the courses we're doing because we we study but then we feel it's only to to write this paper or to to pass this class and there's been times like myself I've fallen into it where a course is incredibly interesting and I know it's 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 going to enrich my life. I can share this knowledge to others. And just the way you see the world will be enhanced by this knowledge. But I think just the, the nature of papers, exams, we fall. I fall into this mindset of just learn this to write this paper or to pass this course. How do you suggest as a teacher to not fall into this trap, but instead to truly study and learn for the beauty found within studying and learning?
1: So in early February, I've been invited to speak at a national conference in Washington, D.C. about how at Catholic colleges and universities teaching could more consistently ask significant questions for the students. When I prepare a sermon for a Sunday, I usually go through a process, including about three hours on Saturday evening and then another one or two on Sunday morning. I ask myself three questions. The first one, that you have three readings on Sundays. What, as best as we can tell from the scholars and so on, did these texts mean then? The second question is, what might they mean now? And the third question, which I always pose, is who cares? What difference does it make? What's the point? I think if teachers more consistently would be able, as they are teaching, to say why what they're teaching is significant, what the point is, what difference it makes, they are much more likely to engage the students. If they're teaching subjects about which they can't say that, They're wasting time, not only of students, but of their own lives as professors, spending a lot of time teaching stuff that really doesn't make much difference.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and and when I think about courses I've taken, even thinking back to your course in the fall, you did make a point to show us why this matters. And the courses that I've enjoyed the most or have found the most fruitful, the professors, yeah, definitely did make that effort to show how this isn't just an assignment to do because it's assigned this reading on the syllabus, but because this is what it will grant you and and what it will show you that, yeah, we'll we'll better your life and and that matters.
1: And and teaching history can be just a listing of dates and personalities and so on. But for Christians, if you take, for example, the uh, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15, where you have the Council of Jerusalem, the first big gathering and the first big crisis in the Christian community because more and more Jews were joining. And then the question was, since all the first Christians were Jews and part of Jewish identity was following kosher, you could see, understand why people thought that this really was necessary, even for the pagans. And they wrestled with this. And so what most people don't take the time to understand is try to understand why Jewish Christians would think that way, try to understand why pagans would say, you know, I'm not, I don't want to do this. And then try to understand the dilemma that this presented the early church. It was a huge problem because it was their whole future and growth. And how could they take what they always took as law and required and now legitimately change it? And they did it by looking at what they thought was the core and what was changeable and not without some stress on both sides because certain expectations were still in place for the Jewish Christians and certain expectations for the this this process of trying to sort out where the truth is for groups that think differently and come from different backgrounds is a fundamental negotiation that goes on throughout all of history. So you take a thing like the Council of Jerusalem, and you look at it, as, and, and you dramatize it. There was a great history teacher at the University of Dayton who would present the case for Hitler in such a persuasive way that students would be utterly shocked that they're finding it agreeable. Wow. But of course, I mean, he thought Hitler was a murderous thug. Yeah. But try to enter into the head of a person who was convinced that there was a crucial need for Germany to rise up, to claim its distinctive heritage, to be able to say clearly to the rest of the world that we have culture, we have power, we have strength, and we can make a difference, especially by making it clear that there are certain parts of the po- human population that simply are inferior. And they cannot be given the same status. Do we want to be strong and powerful? Blah, blah, blah. You know, and they go, whoa. So those things uh, are ways in which I think we really come to a deeper understanding of of history uh, that lives.
0: Yeah, it's a great point, too, thinking about going into that perspective. Because, yeah, a lot of times we'll read that history and think, "How, how could that have happened? And it did happen. And then there's almost a sense of, ah, I wouldn't do that if that was me. But there's a, there's a good chance it might have And you're right, when you, you contextualize it, but also get into the mindset of what was going on here. Yeah, that's, and and brings it alive, I think you said as well.
1: The chant, the chant in Charlottesville by the white supremacists, the Jews will not replace us. The Jews will not yeah. replace us. And so the themes of the Nazi period continue. Why would that be the case? And history's important. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So this something I've been thinking about in recent weeks is this is probably for humanities in general. A question of how can one know what they're they're doing is making a difference. And I think about how if you're towards the natural sciences or the STEM fields, so an architect will construct this building, and you can see, okay, I've, I've built this building, people are living in it, it's a hospital, it's a school, I I've, I've have this physical representation of something I did that is making an impact. A medical doctor will heal broken bones and have this physical representation of, okay, I've done something that is good. In the humanities, though, where it's a little more abstract, where you don't necessarily have this Physical representation of I've put something out and this is what it is. Instead, I think, for example, history, when learning history, it would change the way maybe we act or, or how can I guess you, you know that, okay, what I'm doing here has made this difference and this is what represents this.
1: You're asking two different questions, actually. One is dangerous and the other is uh, salvific. The one that's dangerous is, how do I know what difference I'm making? That's when you become preoccupied with your impact. And you want to know that you're making a difference. And if you're not careful, that kind of a preoccupation gradually transforms into a huge ego. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you spoke about the humanities as being kind of abstract. That's only from the point of view of science. Science wants to measure empirically, often in terms of numbers, what it's dealing with and what it's trying to understand. The humanities deal with things deeper that cannot be empirically measured, they deepen one's empathy, one's sense of embrace. Of different realities go back to us talking about the poor pagans coming into a Jewish Christianity they enlarge the heart they give you insight into the perversity of human beings it provides you with all kinds of rich stories that illuminate all kinds of stuff so the last thing I would use as a word to describe the humanities Patrick is that they're abstract. Let me give you an example of just a simple story. It's rather famous. It appears in the Buddhist tradition. It's also in the Christian tradition. And if you remember, I told you this a year ago in class, and that is there were two young monks in their 20s taking an all-day journey from one monastery to the other. And at noon, they came to a small little river And at their side of the river was this beautiful young woman dressed in very fine clothing. And she obviously wanted to go across the river, um, but didn't want to get dirty and ruin her dress and so on. So the one monk gathered her up in his arms and carried her across the river and put her down. And then the two monks continued on their journey in silence, as good monks would until they were approaching, several hours later, their destination, at which point, the monk that did not pick up the young woman in his arms said to the other, brother, I don't think that was very prudent for you to gather up that woman in your arms and carry her like that. And the other monk looked at him and said, I put her down at the other side of the river, you're still carrying her. Now, if somebody asks me an empirical question like, well, did that really happen? they've missed the point it happens all the time for a heart that's not purified and the, the existential importance of that story for everybody to do an examination of conscience as to what motivates them what they continue to think about and so on it's very important so let's not be preoccupied with the results of our actions and that's also not described the humanities as abstract.
0: Yeah, well, well said. And about that too, I think we've spoken about this before, where the or a very common phrase we'll hear is critical thinking. But we and as you mentioned this term as well, we don't speak more about or really at all in the academic setting of of the heart. So how do you think we can still have critical thinking because it has its its good aspects, but not completely neglect that emphasis on the heart.
1: People who think critical thinking is the only way to think are not thinking critically. Because while on the one hand, you certainly want people to be able to curate the flood of information that comes through social media, some of it nonsense, some of it distorted, so on. You need need to be able to sort things out I'm trying to get my my students to look at the the Da Vinci Code with critical eyes, and some of them are just duped. (laughs) They're not thinking. So that is a positive role for critical thinking. But you could think of a mass murderer who did a very careful critical analysis that would increase the number of people he could kill so that critical thinking can be used for very bad things. Unless there's a moral framework within which critical thinking operates unless there is in the last analysis not just an emphasis on knowledge but on love and service. Critical thinking by itself is dangerous. Mm. It's useful in the right context, but it's also dangerous. It's just like people often talk about values. My favorite atheist Friedrich Nietzsche did an analysis of values and what he really showed was they're relativistic. Things are valuable because I value them. Not things are valuable because of what they are, but they have an objective worth. Take the example of friendship. It's not what you know, it's who you know. So you start working angles to to get into relationship with people that can advance your career. That's using people, right? On the other hand, if friendship becomes an objective value to be treasured in itself to be reverenced and to be cultivated, not because of what you get out of it, but because of what you can give it, then you have gone beyond critical thinking.
0: Mm. Yeah. And with that too, do you think it's the role of education to really teach us how to, how to do these things or is it something that we should just leave to outside the classroom That'll just happen naturally in our relationships in life.
1: Both. Both Both are important. Most of us don't remember what our teachers have said 10 years later. But we remember who they were. Mm -hmm. We remember the kind of person that they were, the, the sense of them. And you might remember a couple of phrases and so on if you kept notes and all the rest of that. That's one of the reasons why your relationships and friendships in college in that setting is uh, very important. You learn a lot and some things get very confused and messed up too in that setting. But I do think that one of the problems in the university is that it's such a disproportionate number of students compared to professors and elders. So, I think one of the most important forms of conversation is intergenerational Mm -hmm. like we're having right now. I think it's really important on substantive issues. Really listening to each other, trying to learn from each other, asking questions that matter, searching for answers that are true. So, my own view on that is that uh, I do think that what happens in the classroom is important. Again, I said, teachers that say, what's the point of all this, this is significant If they just read notes that are already there or repeat the textbook. This is a pain. You shouldn't yeah. pay money for that. But on the relationships you have and the friendships you form, number of marriages come out of college, that's no small matter. Yeah. The number of understandings quite different than what you enter college with as to what you want to devote your life to. That's not insignificant. And some of that becomes much clearer outside of the classroom than inside it. Best of all worlds, they both contribute.
0: Awesome. Something you mentioned this morning in your homily where, and I think USC is probably a perfect example, the college campus can sometimes become this bubble where you're in this, this nice world with problems as well, but you're very disconnected from the outside community and the quote-unquote, real world. And I I think USC is a great example where you have USC, and then right outside is South Central, which is a much different story than you'll find on the USC campus. So for college students in general, but particularly at USC, how can you best, and from your, even though I'm a sophomore, first semester on campus, even early on, not using the excuse of, oh, well, when I'm a junior or senior, how can students Prevent the campus from becoming a bubble and engage with the community that is surrounding the campus?
1: On the eve of the Second World War, uh, C.S. Lewis, who had fought in the First World War and was wounded, was a professor and he gave a lecture entitled Learning in Wartime. And he gave it on a campus where there, I guess Oxford I guess it was, where There were students there that weren't in the war. And the question is, how can you justify going to school when all this is going on on the mainland in Europe? And he gives a brilliant answer, I think. And what he does, again, is that the real issue is, how worthwhile is your education? To what extent is what you're studying something that transforms you and prepares you to make a difference in the world? That's less of a bubble. Mm -hmm. That's not really a bubble. Can the university become a bubble? Absolutely. An unreal world where your biggest preoccupation is not having a B plus but an A (laughs) minus. It's like the end of the world. Rather than saying, you know, this course is much harder. I'm not going to get as good a grade, but I am learning a ton. Give me students like that any day.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And Now, sometimes I wonder, though. With the way the college admissions process is, where we do from high school, we're almost bred to be obsessed with our grades, we can get into the, the name brand college, even though there's thousands of colleges that are fantastic that you don't need to be, you know, it's not a 5% acceptance rate. Do you think that then carries over? So a place like USC, I think Last year was 11% acceptance rate. It's ridiculously low. Do you think because the students, in order to get accepted most, to an extent had to be obsessed with grades, then that carries over into college and taints the experience where they maybe go into it, as you were saying, with one of their main focuses being getting that A as opposed to a B, and they miss out on what a school like USC could really give them?
1: This is a huge question, and we could spend a long time on it. I don't think we have that time. However, I would say this much. When you look at very high-achieving students who have very good grades, you're almost always looking at well-to-do families. Mm. So to say that somehow universities being selective is based on meritocracy that you merit is very misleading because most students who've had the chance to live in neighborhoods where they're really good schools, be able to go to private schools where they receive good education, come from good financial backgrounds. And many kids that don't have that opportunity live in neighborhoods where the schools are lousy, even though they're public, they're not well done, they're not Teachers are not compensated, uh, so on and so forth. Parents don't have an experience of college. They don't know what college is themselves. They've worked very hard. Mm. They can be every bit as intelligent as anybody that would be able to get into a prestigious school. But they're seen to be, by many people, well, their scores weren't that high. Therefore, we can't take the risk. Rather than say, look at the neighborhood, this is a person that we should treat like anybody else. We should not have a single criterion for what students to admit, which just adds to our prestige because if most of the students come from wealthy neighborhoods, then wealthy parents will give to the school and it will just be a cycle that will continue to build and it will marginalize the poor again and again. Can universities then solve all the problems of poverty if they change their admission policy? That's overstating it, but there are certain things they can do. I spend a good deal of time with my first-year students trying to explain to them, and there are some that don't come from that kind of background, why, why they have every bit of possibility of intelligence and developing their skills as anybody else. And never assume that someone that is more fluent verbally is more intelligent than you.
0: Mm.
1: They're just saying more words more easily. Yeah,
0: that's, again, well said. So I guess shift in here now from education more into the faith and culture. Now you mentioned in your credo talk a few weeks ago that basically ways to to be educated as a, a Catholic and particularly a young Catholic. So how do, what do you think are some basic ways that you can stay informed as a, a Catholic today? So when you are faced with these these questions, um, maybe that you don't even have answers to, you can know how to deal with it and also just be engaged with your faith, not just, yeah, I go to mass on Sundays and pray, but to be truly knowledgeable about the faith and not just theology, but also contemporary issues and things like that.
1: Actually, there are a lot more resources today than there ever been before. Some through social media that are very good, some that are terrible. Some sites that claim to be catholic are deeply anti-catholic and destructive so you got to sort through that network reading books i would love to see every newman club every university center that has students to have a library and to have a way to promote those i mean this is a university so you're going to encounter all kinds of questions and all kinds of courses that are raised through science and history and so on and so forth, how are you going to deal with those? The third thing is we need to raise up more Catholic scholars. I'm not talking about priests and religious. There are some priests and religious that are scholars, but not all of them are. That's a special vocation. I like to say that if you you go to a doctor, it's expensive. You better have insurance, and you go because you're sick or you don't want to get sick. If you go to a lawyer, you, you, it's going to be expensive, billing hours and all of that, and you want to avoid trouble or you know get defense and so on. But if you go to see a great teacher, it doesn't cost you anything, hmm. and you can go as often as you want. And the fact that teachers get paid a lot less than lawyers and doctors shows you something about the sickness in our society. In Asian cultures, elders and teachers are venerated in a way that in Western culture they are not. So I would say another aspect then, the third thing I'm mentioning is, in your generation, why not devote your life to becoming a Catholic intellectual? Why not devote your life, if it's as a psychologist, to explore the role of religion in the human psyche and let that be the center of your work and your research and enrich it by a strong liturgical life? You know, people talk about mindfulness, wow, this is really something fantastic, and they're totally ignorant of the whole contemplative tradition in Christianity. Yeah. That is deeper and more enriching than simply stress reduction. Stress reduction should not be the goal in life. If that were the case, Jesus should never have gone to Jerusalem. So, my own view is, be part of the solution, Patrick study, inform yourself. They're the most fascinating questions about the meaning of life, the meaning of death, the meaning of love, the meaning of forgiveness. These are all part of that tradition. But of course, you may not make a lot of money.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, awesome. And it, leading into next part here, with obviously we, we hear it a lot, the disaffiliation. I know you recently co-authored a book, Uh, dealing with disaffiliation, specifically in America. And as a young Catholic, when you're you're met with friends, people in classes, just people you encounter who have left the faith or were never in it but have a hostile view towards the faith, how do you think it's the the best way? I guess two questions here. So first, how can, from the Catholic perspective, we best – work to bring people into the faith and kind of on the the macro level what do you think the church could do that would allow the or at least give the best chance to to bring people back to the, the faith or, or bring people into it
1: when you say what could the church do what do you mean by the church
0: i guess um kind of at the the larger level so pope bishops From the the church leadership perspective, what can the the leaders of the church do?
1: Yeah, that's what I thought you were saying, and I would say don't think that way. 99% of the church don't belong to that category. Yeah. Now, how do I deal with most of the students I teach are unaffiliated. Some of them have never been affiliated. Some of them are devout in another religion. Most of them are not. The first thing they're puzzled by is at a place like the University of Southern California, a chaired professor is a priest. This catches their attention immediately. And my hope is very simple, and that is that at the end of the first class, they might say to themselves privately something like, he may be a priest, but he seems to have a brain. (laughs) To get over the stereotype that, you know, Catholics in general can't think for themselves, and priests in particular. So I think one of the reasons why a lot of people walk away from religion is because they have trouble with some of the teachings. My experience has been almost always they have a very limited or false understanding of the teachings. I've had students who say something, well, I can't accept da-da-da-da-da, And I say to them always, what is that that you can't accept? Tell me what that teaching is. And almost always, I can end up saying, yeah, I disagree with that too. Because they don't have an accurate view of the teaching. If we leave it there, it's simply in the intellectual realm. The real wound that a lot of people have is not intellectual. The real wound is lack of exposure to a loving community that is explicitly rooted in faith, that treasures that experience and talks about it. So the crisis is, with the number of people, young adults who are not affiliating, is that many of them have never experienced that. As a child in grade school, in high school, maybe in a family, it was just expected they go to church. But once they're on their own, they don't really feel any draw. There was never an experience of something that really touched them at a deeper level than anything else in their life. There's not uh, a feeling that there's something here. I have a longing in my heart. This is the season of Advent. I have a longing in my heart that I can't fill. And every time I try to fill it with other things, I know it falls short. I'm, I'm disappointed. It it, it can be any number of superficial things, booze, sex, drugs. It doesn't sustain much for any length of time. It's superficial. So I often say, if I just use the example of religious life, religious life is built upon community life. I think this is also true of marriage. Very few people leave a religious order from the center of the community they almost always have existed for some period of time on the periphery Mm -hmm. and then woke up one day and saw that's where they really are. So they never had really been at the center of the vibrancy. True in a marriage. Divorces rarely erupt through one fight overnight. They come from a gradual disengagement over a long period of time or a bad start. This was from the beginning, a mistake. You know, this sometimes happens too. So I think that one of the real problems we're facing is that many people have drifted away because they were never at the core. Mm. There are other aspects. Parents, a lot of times, have lived their lives in such a way that they've gone to church, but it's not meant much else in any way. It's even more complex. There are some very devout parents, good parents, and they have four kids, and two of them have drifted off, want nothing to do with the church, and the other two are very devout. So how, how do you explain that? So I don't want to give any simplistic analysis here. There's a mm-hmm. lot of complexity. I do think the media can be a serious problem. If we're looking at the Dan Brown novel, the Da Vinci Code, in class. And I mentioned it before that there's students that swallow some of the stuff whole and they were raised Catholic. Yeah. Were you paying attention? <laughs> For God's sake. You know? The Council of Nicaea in 325 voted Jesus into divinity. They made him God. Really? Well, how how would you respond to that? Well, first of all, most kids don't know anything about the Council of Nicaea. But they ought to at least go to the New Testament where Jesus says at one point, the Father and I are one. Jesus went around forgiving sins. Jews knew only, only God could forgive sins. He acted like he was God. You know, so these are, these are ordinary things that if people would connect dots, they would begin to see some things. And I think failures in the church and leadership, bishops, Cardinal McCarrick, none of this helps very much at all. I actually don't think many young adults get very turned off by sexual scandals. They're surrounded by the misuse of sex, and they see that all too easily <laughs> The movies. They watch and all that kind of stuff. It's a form of entertainment. But I do think that the problem is that they have never been touched in the heart. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't want to suggest, I think it's helpful if there's knowledgeable teachers and if there's a proper understanding. I tell my students that, at least those that are Christian, that I the purpose of this course is to try, as you, try to raise you to the level of informed rejection. Mm-hmm. So at least if you're going to reject it, get it right, will you? <laughs> But then getting it right is never only intellectual. Getting it right is love, forgiveness, and laying down your life for others. As one poet put it rather starkly, if you want to be Christian, you better look good on wood.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And going off of that, so how would— I guess this goes into more inter-religious relationships— so people who have been presented in accurate representation of the faith and choose to not enter into the faith. So let's say they're from a different religious background or non-affiliated. As Catholics, how how do we go about interacting with people in that situation? Do we go out with a zeal to to convert them or do we kind of just meet them where they are, kind of coexist in this way? How do we best go about people who have said, look, I've heard it, I've heard the actual teachings, and and I've seen it lived out, and I want to stay over here, I respect it, but I don't think that's for me. How do we best?
1: I don't think that many people have really seen it lived out. I think what moves people on the deepest level is love and friendships. There's nobody I know that doesn't want good friends, doesn't hunger for love, wouldn't like to be known as someone who's capable of love and forgiveness. When they meet people that embody this, curiosity rises. There's a fascinating book written years ago. I used to teach a seminar, a senior seminar on C.S. Lewis, so we do a lot of stuff with it. But it's a book called A Severe Mercy. I haven't thought of this in years. But it's a story about an agnostic who is an adventurer of sorts. He actually sails around the world in a boat and finally lands in England and runs into a number of people who were very intelligent, very well-informed, and devout Christians. And at first, it gave him a bit of a migraine because not only were they intelligent, they were devout. And secondly, they had a lot of fun together. They weren't like, you know, constantly whipping themselves into subjection of and... <laughs> you know, fasting until they looked like gaunt. <laughs> no. So, and, and eventually this turned this person around. So I live in a world that, of a university that overemphasizes the conceptual. I often say if, if, if you have a concept that you can't give an example from life to illustrate, what's the concept for it might have a place in certain aspects of, well, even in neuroscience. Neuroscience, you'd say, let me explain what this, how this neuron does. And I could say, if it doesn't do that, this is what happens. Yeah. I give an example. So, you know, I would just say in general, there's it, no, uh, you know, one, two, three, this is what we do, and we can turn this all around. We're living in a period of time in the church now, since World War II where there's been more change culturally than there was in the previous 1,300, 1,400 years. That's my view. Mm. The first major change that happened in Christianity was when it became the official religion of the Roman Empire in the fourth century. From the time of the Reformation, the French Revolution, the Enlightenment, all this mushrooming more and more to have a secular, commercialized culture and so on and so forth, it's blown apart the kind of social structure that culturally existed for centuries. So we're trying to find our way in a new environment, too. Who worries about missing Sunday Mass as a mortal sin? Or bishops announcing, we're going to reinstate the obligation. Ho-hum, <laughs> but beyond. I mean, the, the motivation has to be at a much deeper level. And it has to be rooted both in experience, And intelligence. And that's not IQ. Intelligence is the capacity for love. My dad never went past the eighth grade. My granddad died. My dad was 13. He had to run the farm. He was born in
2: 1899.
1: Wow. And he was one of the most brilliant men I've ever met. I admired him. I watched him. I watched him. I won't go into the details of his job, but he actually worked his way up in this company in Cleveland when they all moved. To, they moved my mother and my father, and the first of the five of us kids, moved to Cleveland, Ohio, and got a job working for a wonderful Jew. Um, and there would be people with college degrees coming to sell stuff to the company my dad was working for, my dad would interview them. So here he is with an eighth-grade education interviewing people with college degrees. And I, I was in the office sometimes, and I got to watch him do it. He, he sized those people up in no time flat. Wow. <laughs> it just was absolutely fascinating to see, you know. And he did it without condescension, <clears throat>
2: you
1: know, but with a sense of humor. And he, and he also could see very quickly whether the topic was the product that they were trying to sell was worth anything. Yeah. <laughs> so these are things that I think are uh, the kind of people that, that will sustain us. I think there'll be fewer in the church in coming years, Mm -hmm. but I think the ones who remain are either neurotic (laughs) or, God willing, much deeper people who embody the faith in a way that's compelling.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, something you said made me think of, I think I heard it said that the church moves in centuries, not days, or something along those lines, and... I think particularly amongst young Catholics, one of the most frustrating parts is we want just change. And, and, and now, how do you suggest best understanding that you know the church has been around for thousands of years? And as you said, changes that are happening now are arguably more than have happened in thousands of years. So understanding that context of which the church is working through, while at the same time remaining Catholic, but not being lax, still being active, criticizing parts that you think need to be changed, but at the same time, understanding that it is not going to change overnight.
1: For young adults who wonder why this can't change faster, my advice is very simple. Look in the mirror. (laughs) Yeah. How many of you have been dealing with habits that you know you would like to change? stuff you need to do and you don't do it yeah i mean just on a personal level i'd make the case to begin with i make it to me i mean when you really get older it isn't so much that you get over your bad habits you just catch them sooner (laughs) you know that's not a that would only be depressing if there wasn't a deeper sense of god's love and forgiveness in your life
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So, people that are impatient with change, I always say, "Who was it? Who said it? Somebody, you be the change that you want in the world." Gandhi or somebody said that. He's got a point. Yeah. He's got a point. So be honest with yourself to begin with. I would I would critique the person who's impatient with everybody else not changing the way they want them to. Yeah,
0: well said. All right. So I think that's that's pretty much all I got for today. Huh. But if <laughs> I know this was a nice, lengthy conversation.
1: Thank you, you, Patrick, for your questions. Good questions, substantive questions. I I think we have uh, shared some important thoughts.
0: Yeah, no, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. And any closing remarks after what we've talked to If people, whoever, if anyone listens to this, what you want them to take away, what do you think it would be?
1: It only gets better if you get closer.
0: It's a good place to stop. All right, well, thank everybody for listening and God bless.
2: Disclaimer The opinions and views that are discussed in the Catholic Trojan podcast are solely those of the individuals and do not represent the views of the USC Crusoe Catholic Center as a whole. This podcast allows for a safe space for students to openly engage in fruitful discussions and to express themselves freely. If there are any questions or comments concerning what has been discussed in the podcast, leave a comment below or email Brittany Castillo. Thank you and fight on.